especially being within banking, quitting without a job is very unusual. And so anytime you go away from, you know, the beaten path, it's harder to convince yourself you need more conviction. And even if your gut is is sending you that way or your heart or your intuition or whatever you want to call it, your mind is so trained by the world that we live in that um, it's hard to allow it to give way to, to that other thing that's driving the decision. Welcome to the Augzoro Podcast, a show built to make you think better, ignite conversations, and inspire you to do dope shit. Whether we speak with doctors, designers, athletes, or music artists, our goal is to change the way you see the world and yourself. If this show has moved you in any way, please take a few seconds to send this show to someone else you care about. The best way to spread love is to share what you love. And don't forget to tag Augzoro on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook when you share the show with other people. That way we can respond to you and say what's up. Now, on to that dope shit. This time, I sit down with Jake, the brains behind Blog of Jake and the host of Pod of Jake. Jake first caught my attention when I read a blog post of his on Bitcoin, where he wrote that, quote, Bitcoin is the best opportunity I've come across in my short time as an investor. In this episode, Jake discusses why he chooses to remain anonymous, what makes Bitcoin such a powerful investment, his decision to leave investment banking and pursue content creation full-time, experiencing a moonset, that's right, not a sunset, a moonset, and more. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Jake. All right. So Jake, thank you for taking the time to to hop on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Zach. I thought a good place to start, especially because people that are watching this on YouTube will be seeing the blue dot in place of your face. And I, I wanted to get your thinking behind your decision not to show your face and the meaning for you behind the blue dot that you have on your blog and podcast blog of Jake and pot of Jake? That's a good question. And a, uh, a great place to start. It's funny. It's, uh, it's very much evolved over time. When I started, there's two different aspects there. I, I can speak a little bit to both. One is being pseudonymous in general, uh, you know, not sharing my face and my full name super publicly. The other side is like the blue, the blue dot itself. You know, I could have been pseudonymous, but made myself look like, uh, you know, Brad Pitt if I wanted to, or, or whoever. I could yeah. have put a face of, of whoever or whatever for that matter. Uh, and I went with the blue dot. So on the pseudon, pseudonymity piece, I, I literally have trouble with that word every single time. Uh, you'd think I, I've said it enough. It's, at this it's point, a tough one. But yeah. But I think originally, you know, I, I came from a background. I did a couple of years in, in investment banking out of college. And, uh, you know, I quit my job September 2019. 
and uh, traveled for a few months and then was just kind of figuring out what my next step would be and started writing quite a bit and writing about anything and everything that I wanted to write about. And these weren't necessarily things that I would want like to post on my LinkedIn, like my professional LinkedIn or something like that. And I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for myself. I'm not doing this for people who I've met previously in life or, or certainly not like my colleagues from the banking days. And I wanted to kind of separate this persona a little bit from, you know, what I had done in the past and have the liberty to, to write about whatever I wanted to write about without any worry about, you know, uh, any kickback or anything like that. So the initial reasoning was kind of as simple as that. And since then, I've realized that uh, there's some other benefits to pseudonymity. Uh, and I think it's going to be probably a more popular path for people to take in the years to come. Mm-hmm. But for now, it's been fun for me. And it uh, it also adds like a little bit of a layer of mystique and people like want to know, you know, not not a lot of people know me or, or even care at this point. But even already with like a few hundred followers on Twitter, people are are like asking me like, who am I? And you know, they want to know who the person is. And I'm just like, you know, who cares? Like what, you know, I'm, I'm putting out podcasts that you're enjoying. And uh, I'm writing stuff and tweeting stuff that that you're liking to see. So uh, does it really matter who I am? And I think it's kind of an, an interesting question and an interesting concept that people with the internet and social media and everything like that, you can do that. You can kind of be whoever you want. And it doesn't actually matter if you're from India or China or America, or if you're 12 years old or 52 years old, people can judge you solely sort of on the merit of your content. It's an interesting way to go about content creation. And when I think about anonymity, I think about Marshmallow and the Marshmallow Effect, the the DJ Marshmallow. And yeah. I've I've heard his manager, Mo Shalizzi, talk about the decision to go anonymous. And now it's a bit more well-known who Marshmallow was before he became Marshmallow. And you could find that out in two minutes on Google if you really want to. But Mo Shalizzi, his manager, was talking about how he came up with this more melodic style, the, the, the DJ that he was working with, the producer that he was working with. And he didn't really have a place to put it in his existing project because it, it didn't really fit. He wasn't super melodic and the, that uplifting sort of sound. And so they created Marshmallow. They collaborated together to create this, basically a, a placeholder for the face and the identity, which is the Marshmallow. And that allows you to constantly, not constantly, but uh, reinvent yourself when you want to. And you can reinvent yourself how often or how little you want to if you start making content that you feel like doesn't fit the lane that you're currently in. If you feel like it would be better siloed off in in some other section of content creation. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, It's very challenging, I think, for artists to... I'm not talking about myself necessarily here, but you think about like famous musicians, they want later in life to like explore a new genre than, you know, different than what they got famous for. And they get a lot of pushback in trying to do that because they've built this fan base for rock and roll or whatever it is. And then they want to go later in life and start recording some country albums. And like their fans don't want that. Yeah. So perhaps to your point, there could be, you know, a benefit in being able to kind of create a new brand and uh, 
have yourself kind of disassociated from the original brand and be able to, on the one hand, like experiment a bit more. And on the other hand, you don't have to deal with the challenges of, of bringing a crowd along with you. You kind of start from scratch and learn from some of the lessons that helped you succeed in the first place and, uh, and you know, build from there. So yeah, the, the Sudan pseudonymity piece, I told you I get it wrong every time, has been, uh, <laughs> has been interesting. The blue dot element you also asked about. Mm-hmm. When I started, like I'm, I'm a minimalist a lot, you know, in more ways than one, I'd say like on the one hand, in terms of like design, I like to see like simplistic, clean, minimalist type of things. I don't have many material objects to my name and I prefer it that way. And then even further than that, I try to take kind of a minimalist approach to the way that I live and like not doing too many different things or I don't spread like a super wide net in terms of like the people that I interact with even. I like to focus on, you know, the the activities and the people and kind of the the things that consume my days that I most love and most enjoy. And that's really the point of minimalism to me. It's not to get rid of everything and not have anything, but it's to get rid of all the fluff and, you know, the 25 pencils and pens strewn across your desk and to have the one pen that every time you pick it up, you love to write with. And Mm -hmm. so in thinking about the logo, uh, you know, or the ID, the circle being the shape or the dot uh, is one aspect. I think it's nice. Like it, it fits on Twitter. Like if I had a square logo, uh, it would be cropped by Twitter. Other than that, I I think like that wasn't really a core decision. That was just like a, a convenience that came up. But the key decision was just like, I kind of thought, you know, I didn't put too much thought into it when I started. I was just like, my favorite shape, probably a circle, and my favorite color is definitely blue. So let's do a blue circle and keep it as simple as possible. And I think that's kind of cool. And you know, I haven't had any reason to change it since then. And I think it's also memorable. Like you've got all these, everyone has a logo and nothing against them. I think some are, are really cool and some are pretty busy. And and you know, I, I don't personally like them as much, but regardless, they're all kind of logos. They've all got some text and some designs and some colors. And it's not so often that you see just like a solid color, common shape. And that can then kind of be a little bit easier to recognize, I think. So like if you see a blue dot and you see it one time in your home feed or whatever, you might ignore it. But the second time you might be like, hey, I've seen that before. And then the third time, you know, you you might be interested enough to click. So and like not that I'm like fishing for clicks or anything like that, but I think it's helpful for like brand recognition. Yeah. And you tweeted... I don't remember the exact tweet. You tweeted something along the lines of when people see the blue dot the first time, they may click past it. Second time, maybe a a spark lights or something like that. And then the third time, they're going to be curious and eventually dive deeper into your platform. And so I definitely respect the the minimalist, non-busy aspect of the logo because I, I was thinking in similar in a similar vein when I made the logo for Augzoro, I liked the look of an upside down triangle. And I was, I I think I was searching on Google images for shapes and I saw an upside down triangle and I thought, oh, that looks really cool. And then I made it black and white. And then I kind of looked at my closet and realized that all of my t-shirts are solid colors and many of them are black and white. And so this would actually be something I would wear for merch or something in the future, anything design related. So I, I definitely get the the appeal of the minimalist design. 
for what it's worth, I, I have my two cents on logos there, but I like yours and uh, especially the, uh, I like the font of Oxoro. It's like, you know, I, I think fonts can be uh, like pretty bad or like pretty cool. And uh, I like that one specifically. My font on my website, I'm, uh, you know, I created this all and haven't really changed anything since then. Mm-hmm. My font's a little interesting. It's like a source code font is what it's called. And it, it's mm-hmm. very almost intentionally ugly. And I don't know. Maybe I'll change that at some point. But I like fonts and, and I like yours. So I want to do uh, I appreciate that. that. Thank you. So I, I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned before. And that was the, the artists experimenting with different sorts of music. And for example, someone that goes from pop to country. And I guess the, the devil's advocate to that position would be so if you look at someone like Machine Gun Kelly, he had been known for rapping up until he was 28, 29 years old. He had rapped exclusively, kind of played around a little bit with pop and melodic. And then all of a sudden he drops this pop punk album. Travis Barker's on it, Halsey's on it, Trippy Red. And he has a lot of hip hop artists that normally stick to hip hop that are hopping on this alternative genre train. And he certainly, I saw a few articles here and there that said MGK abandoned hip hop. Not a lot though. And I also saw a lot of his fans, myself included, that will follow MGK's artistry and at least give it a chance in whatever form that it is. So if you, if you apply that to content, I would say the thing that you may be losing from an outsider's perspective, because I've never created anything anonymously over a long-term period, I would think that something you may be losing is that people may want to listen to you regardless of what you make, or at least give it a chance where they see your face, they see, they know who you are. And for example, if you switch to you know a podcast on surfing, but it was hosted by Jake and they, they knew exactly who you were, they may be willing to give it a chance. And if it was good they would start listening to that since they maybe just like you as a a person. So it's an, it's an interesting trade-off because there are artists that create alter egos in a sense, like Porter Robinson has a couple. And then you look at MGK who releases stuff just as MGK, even though it's totally different. So I'm not... Ex- I, I know there's a lot of gray area in that. It, it's interesting to see though, like how which artists can do that successfully and not change and then which artists create that alter ego because they feel like it doesn't fit in what they've already created for themselves. Yeah, that's a uh, a really good point. I think a couple things that kind of stick out to me. One, to your point, it's while it may be hard to um to kind of transfer or transition your audience to a new aspect of, of what you're doing to a new thing, a new genre or business or, or whatever it might be, it seems to me that it's it's probably harder to start it from scratch. So I think that's very much a fair point. But while it may not be as easy to kind of convert that audience, I think a well-known person might just enjoy, you know, they might have plenty of money and plenty of notoriety from whatever they're doing in the first place. Mm-hmm. And they may be more interested in just being able to express themselves and maybe a hundred followers of their pseudonymous country album 
is something that gives them as much kind of joy and 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 appreciation and like feeling of purpose or whatever it might be as the million followers that they have on their rock and roll kind of brand so it's it may i do totally agree that it's it's probably if you want to start a new whatever and have it be successful and you're already successful in one avenue building that trust is super important and being able to kind of call on that trust to follow you to whatever you want to do next is an extremely valuable thing. I'm actually right now, I'm reading the Be- Bezos's, uh, his shareholder letters for mm-hmm. Amazon shareholders from, uh, from 1997 to, to modern day. I'm probably in like, you know, around 2005 right now or something like that. They're, they're short and, and they're really good. I've never really read shareholder letters before this, but um, he talks about, you know, they started, they were, they were selling books online. Like never in a million years could you have kind of foreseen that an online bookstore, I mean, maybe he did, but the average person wouldn't expect that like, oh, the biggest internet business in, in 2020, yeah, that'll be this, uh, this online bookstore for sure. It's just like totally, you know, that's a very specific thing and to imagine what it's grown into is incredible. And, and the way that he's done that, or at least part of it has been ever since the first shareholder letter, he talks about customer obsession, be like relentlessly obsessed with delighting the customer. And by doing that, he's built this trust in Amazon over time. And if you buy books from Amazon and they start offering CDs, you start, you start buying CDs and then, you know, video games and then electronics and then you are a consumer and you're buying all of those goods from Amazon and you see that now they have AWS and you go and you use them for cloud services. And it's like you build that trust. It's really an invaluable thing to to do to build trust with a group of people and a growing group of people. And I don't see myself as not being able to do that just because I don't put my face and name on it. I do agree it's it's maybe a little harder and, and maybe it takes a little bit longer. People like to see a face mm-hmm. and they like to know a name. It just makes things more personable. But mm-hmm. I do see already, you know, people seem to uh, be putting a little bit more trust in me and a little bit more faith into whatever I'm doing and are excited about, you know, the next thing that I'm going to release. And even if they found me for crypto type podcast guests, they might listen in when I talk about, uh, you know, when I have someone on the show who wants to talk about like reversing aging. So. It's definitely a good point that that you bring up, and I think trust is is certainly something that uh, I think a lot about. Yeah, that brings up a good point. Building the trust with your audience, and I was trying to think of a good way to bring this up, and I wanted to talk about accountability of content creators and what's the best way to be held accountable for the things that you say as an anonymous person on the internet. And you talk a lot about David Goggins, who's someone I also admire as well. And I read his book recently too. He's a beast. Yeah, absolute beast. And and part of kind of what gets me off about his content is that it's him looking into the camera, running, lifting. You can see that he's doing the things that he talks about. And so I'm wondering for you, how do you view what would be the best way for your audience to hold you accountable? How do you think about the relationship between accountability and content as an anonymous creator? Since you don't have your face. Yeah, 
Well, on the one hand, I mean, I certainly want to be accountable and maybe I should think about it a bit more explicitly. I guess I don't think about it too much because first and foremost, I, I view myself as being accountable to myself and I have very high expectations and higher than I think anyone would have of me. And so I don't worry too much about it, but perhaps it would be a useful exercise to think about that a little bit. One side of it is that I don't want to say something that doesn't represent me. And, and if I do, that's kind of easy to do. It, it wouldn't seem, you know, it seems like, oh, yeah, it's like, you know, that's, that's easy. Just like, don't say anything that like, you don't mean but like, people do this all the time, right? Like you have, mm-hmm. and I have, you know, group chats and, and text messages with friends. And the, uh, you know, there's, there's certain, you know, jokes and like, whatever, that's like, you don't mean it. And everyone gets it. And, and the part of the thing yeah. is everyone knows who everyone is, deep down, and that, you know, so you have more flexibility to to say things and uh and it's just you know maybe that's just what we are as humans or or maybe i'm, I'm like a bad guy uh, but i, I think yeah. i'm a pretty good person and, and i've made jokes that i wouldn't want you know a billion people to see and and i don't yeah. you know this pro- people are probably going to run with that in their imagination and make it a lot worse than it is i'm not talking about like really really ugly stuff here but those jokes can be taken a thousand different ways too. Ten, 10 people can hear the same joke and they'll take it in 10 different ways in terms of where they are on, oh, that was a hilarious joke and I love it. Or this is the most offensive thing that I've ever heard. There will be 10 different spots on that spectrum if you tell the same joke to 10 different people. So it's a tough thing to, to navigate with content when you're thinking about how people are going to take it. For me, what helps me is I try to release the best piece of content possible and whatever that means for me in a podcast or maybe a blog post, something like that. And then once it's to the level that I want to release, however people take it, however people want to interpret it is totally okay and totally up to them on that spectrum. Another interesting aspect is that I feel uh, a little odd because I'm talking about like uh, the, the nuanced ways in which accountability can be unfair for for the vast majority of cases like accountability i think is a very good thing but in some cases in this woke culture that we're living in i think it is applied in in some of the wrong ways in in ways that are um not reasonable you can't hold people of the past to norms of the present so you see people's statues and i'm not this isn't a defensive every single person whose statue has ever been taken down, there's probably a lot taken down for good reason, but there's probably a lot that don't deserve to be taken down. It's like the, the thing that I consider, you know, a parallel today, and this isn't like super uncommon, but I think I, I might've thought of it before I'd really seen it around, which is that I try to think of like, what's the alternative, some of the, some of the cancelable offenses from the past, what could be an example of today where you can say like, this is how that kind of would have looked back then. And it's like not reasonable to expect people to see outside of their own time, or at least I don't think it is. And so an example from today is like, anyone who's not a strict vegan today, there's no room for that person to be a good person. Because in 25 years, we don't eat real animals anymore. Everything's lab grown meat or vegan products. And a number of people you know, for right reasons or wrong reasons, whatever their reasons were, they started being vegan in the two, in the early 2000s. And 
those people were amazing. All of them, no matter, you know, whatever else, whatever else they did, we're just going to judge people from back then based on whether they were vegan or not. So the vegans were awesome. But if you weren't vegan, I don't care if you cured cancer and, you know, did this and that for, for people less fortunate than yourselves and you were a teacher and whatever. There's no room for forgiveness there. You were eating animals. You should have known better. And I think that's the thing that, that bothers me a little bit. And I wish people were a little bit more forgiving in that way. Another example, I think, is owning pets. So like, you know, owning dogs has been relatively um, commonplace for, for some time. I don't know exactly how yeah. long. But uh, in the future, I could easily envision that being considered wrong, at least in the way that we do it today, where like your dog kind of like hangs out around the house all day and like you take it out on a leash for a walk. Like these things could be viewed in the future as like pretty ethically wrong. But today it's like, you know, we, we eat hamburgers and steaks and like we, we have dogs and we love our dogs yeah. and we appreciate our food. And it's like people aren't so one dimensional in these decisions that over time maybe realized what was the norm before is no longer acceptable. And I think there's just generally not enough forgiveness and, uh, and understanding and roots for redemption as mm -hmm. maybe I, I would say there should be. And so the good news for me is that while I do want to be accountable, certainly, I also am somewhat uncancelable. You could cancel my brand for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, not, you know, who, whoever wants to do that, like the New York Times or some woke famous person or whatever can turn people against me or whatever. But hopefully you can't go after my actual, you know, identity or my family or something like that. And so I think that's part of why I say I, I could see pseudonymity growing over time is kind of for that reason. I think this whole woke thing is a little bit hard to reverse. Maybe it does go in the other direction a little bit. But I think one solution is like, you know, let people kind of take risks. You know, you want to take risks under your own name for the sake of accountability, like you said, for sure. And that's very important. But you don't want to risk your ability to like, put food on the table for for your family or like, walk around in public without getting like, spit on or something like that. You want to be able yeah. to have some semblance of a regular life. And that was another aspect of me getting started actually as well. It sounds silly. Uh, maybe this will age well, or, or it'll be really funny and, and a joke looking back. But when I started, I was like, it actually doesn't take that many followers to be recognizable, especially in like a certain area. So like one, one content creator I think is doing a great job is Pomp, Anthony Pompliano. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. he's, I think he's in New York, maybe Miami now, but regardless. Yeah, just listen like, to he, your podcast with him. Yeah, so he has, I loved it. Yeah, he's doing, a, he's doing an awesome job with, with the approach that he's taking, I think. Um, certainly some things that I learned from him in that conversation. But I don't know how many followers. He has like 300,000 followers, something like that, maybe. But I'm sure, people yeah, I'm sure people recognize him in New York. And I don't, there are certain benefits of, of being rich and famous. I don't think that's one of them. I think that's a detraction. And my point, like, you know, I, I don't envision myself being like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio or anything like that. But it actually doesn't take that many followers to be somewhat recognizable in your public life. And I want to be able to get to that point without having any reservations in that dimension. And so that was another aspect actually of the, uh, the you know, desire not to broadcast my identity. And, and to your point, like people may be able to connect the dots and whatever, and that's fine. But I don't know Marshmallow's real name. 
because he never, like you said, like, because I could Google it, but, but I don't care. And like, uh, yeah. it's not, but I know Marshmallow because he's, you know, it's a famous name. So if a subset of people who follow me want to figure out who I am, fine. But I don't need to be broadcasting it and I don't need to be broadcasting my face so people can see me in public and not even know anything about me, but be like, oh, I've seen your face. And like, now I want a picture or like something like that. It's just like silliness and something that, that I wouldn't want to deal with. Yeah, that's a good point. It's something I have been thinking about more recently is that as a content creator who is public with their identity, you're basically buying into however big you become and whatever your reputation is, whatever people think of you and tweet at you or possibly even do to you in public, you're also bringing the people closest to you along for that ride, whatever the ride may be. You're certainly... As the creator, you're certainly going to take the brunt of it, but your your family is also going to see some some results of and and feel some emotional things or or get some uh, blowback from whatever your reputation is, good or bad, or somewhere in between. So that's something I've definitely been thinking about more recently. Yeah, I think uh, you know it's it's maybe hard to identify like what the changes are, but it's definitely. It's not the same for your kids or your significant other or whatever it might be if no one knows you versus if 500,000 people know you, especially if you live Mm -hmm. somewhere like New York or LA or San Francisco or whatever it might be. Yeah. So something I wanted to get into, which you mentioned before, is investment banking. And you wrote a little bit about your decision to make investment banking on Blog of Jake. And I wanted to hear in uh, if you'd be able to to vocalize what you were thinking at the time when you left investment banking what le- what led up to that decision in the 3 to 6 months leading up to the day that you left and how did you act in the immediate aftermath cuz a lot of people kind of fantasize about leaving their jobs without actually putting a plan for the reality of okay I I'm not working anymore. I'm not receiving a salary from this company. What do I do now? So I think it could be beneficial for listeners to hear what your thinking process and action process was leading up to it and how you handled yourself in the immediate aftermath of leaving investment banking. Yeah. So uh, I want to... I'll definitely answer that. And I have have a lot to kind of share there. But... um... I want to circle back on something I said earlier with like what I might say with my buddies versus like what I would want to say in public. This is actually a great example. Like with my friends in banking, we joke around and be like, banking sucks. Like this is this is awful. But like realistically, mm-hmm. if we're and and you know, we all observe this to be true, I think, or most most of us that I that I was friends with, is you know, we know damn well it, it doesn't suck. We're we're making great money, like we're learning a lot. But it's it's fun to say like it sucks, you know, when you're just like joking around. And that's something where like in a different context, kind of things can be I don't think everything said in a private conversation is intended, especially among groups of people, is intended to be shared broadly. So that's kind of what I was getting at before. To address your question more directly and talk about what I was thinking leading up to leaving and in the immediate aftermath, I wrote a pretty good blog on this, I think. It's one of the one of the reasons for writing my blog that I think is really cool is I'll, I can read back and, and kind of know where my thoughts were at a certain time in my life. And so like when I'm 40, 
I'll have a really good sense if I want. And if I want to go read back, I'll have a really good sense for what a lot of my thoughts were when I was 25. And so one of the posts I wrote was, uh, you know, why I quit my job as an investment banker. And I started off by saying something like, uh, banking is, uh, is something that it's an interesting phenomenon because everybody wants to get in and everybody who's in wants to get out. And the reason for that is that and you know, everyone's an over-exaggeration to some degree, but it's an attractive job because you get paid a ton, you learn a ton, and you have a lot of options on the way out where you just pay your dues for a year or two and longer if you want, but all it takes is like a year or two. And um, you can then get a, a number of really attractive jobs, whether it's like private equity, hedge funds, a lot of it's within finance, but finance is an industry that gets paid really well and people want money for good reason. and it's just an attractive way to go in a world where a lot of people want to kind of optimize for optionality. And, you know, I was no different. So uh, I was fortunate to get a job with a, uh, a technology mergers and acquisitions group because I was kind of, you know, I was interested in technology. What I said was like, technology changes the world and, and money runs it. So it's good to know a little bit about both. Got the job, did a couple of years, was, you know, lucky to make some good money live comfortably in, in San Francisco and New York, but realized at the end of the day, I, I didn't want to climb the ladder there. So let me think about like, you know, what were some of my main considerations at that point? One thing I thought about was like, I mentioned Bezos earlier. He has a, a good framework that he talks about for how he decided to start Amazon. It's called like regret minimization framework or regret minimization something. Basically, he fast forwards himself to like when he's 80 and he's like, what do I think is more likely that I would regret quitting my job at the hedge fund for him and, and starting this, this company that I think is, is a good idea or you know, not doing it? And that made it really clear for him that, that not doing it would be the thing that he would be much more likely to regret. And for me, it was like, what am I going to regret? Not doing a third year in banking or mm-hmm. not you know, following my gut, uh, believing that there was something better out there for me that I could kind of bet on myself to find something that would, uh, you know, would just be better along, you know, every dimension for, for what I wanted to kind of do with my life and, and bet on myself. And uh, it became really clear to me that that incremental third year in banking wasn't, I don't think I was going to regret passing that up versus, you know, taking this opportunity, very fortunate, don't have like a, a family yet or many obligations and had saved some money from a couple of years in banking to buy myself some time. And that became kind of a really interesting option. So that was the start of it. And then I can talk a little bit about, you know, how I set myself up for that and, and what I went and did kind of immediately after too. Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to get into that. I want to just mark the, the regret minimization framework because I think that's a super interesting insight from Bezos. And it that seems like it it would be a a great tool to do that throughout you know maybe once a year or maybe once a quarter to write out what you think your biggest regrets will be in life at that time if you kind of project your life you know 50 60 70 years into the future and you look back on it what what do you think you'll regret the most and so it's obviously it's worked out pretty well for Bezos in terms of what he's wanted to achieve with wealth and and creating a company that infiltrates 
pretty much every aspect of society in some way or another. And that regret minimization framework sounds like something that, yeah, would, would be good for the average person to go through. I'm definitely going to think more about that now in terms of what, what do I think I'm going to regret most? I, I've thought that periodically by chance when I'm making certain decisions where I kind of project forward and think, well, I regret not doing this. But I haven't really adopted that as a, a mechanism of decision making. Yeah, I think it's it's a great one. And um, I think even, you know, you could certainly kind of take some time to think about it every quarter, every year, whatever it might be. But I think it's it's not tremendously important on a regular basis as much as it is when you have a big decision or something that your gut is telling you that your mind might be telling you otherwise. You know, for, for me, like, uh, especially being within banking, quitting without a job is very unusual. And uh, anytime you, you go away from, you know, the beaten path, it's harder for, to convince yourself, you know, you need higher, you need more conviction. And even if your gut is, is sending you that way or your heart or your intuition or whatever you want to call it, your mind is so trained by the world that we live in that um, it's hard to allow it to, to give way to, to that other thing that's driving the decision. But when you put it in the regret framework and you think, not like you know, in a few years, will I regret this? Because that's a little bit different. In, in a few years, I could have thought reasonably like, ah, if I did that like third year in banking, I could have probably been at like a more accelerated path right now or something like that in like my career. But when you do, you know, age 80, you realize on the one hand, none of these decisions, I mean, maybe they matter, but, but maybe not. And, uh, you know, it's more than that. It's, it's very hard to, like, I'm a big believer in the butterfly effect that like very small things can end up totally changing your life. The butterfly effect like comes from the concept mm-hmm. that a butterfly, for, for those listening, you might be familiar, but a butterfly like flaps its wings in Argentina and like there's an earthquake in California or, you know, I'm making up those places, but it's something like that. And that's something that I believe in. So you can't possibly know what small decisions that you're going to make that are going to be those. But when you feel like it's a big decision and you project yourself to age 80 and you look back, it's like, three years in banking versus two years in banking, I wouldn't even know the difference versus a year to explore my interests. And my immediate plan was uh, I bought a one-way ticket to Italy and you know, spent a week there with my girlfriend and then traveled by myself for a little bit and met a buddy in Japan and first time in Asia, first time in Japan. And that was, that was an awesome few weeks. And he was on a longer trip traveling and did some writing along the way and got back and, and was in just a much different state of mind. I, I learned how to budget really like for the first time because when I was in banking, you know, you don't really need to worry not to sound like whatever, but you, you don't really need to keep too, bit, too close of an eye on what you're spending. So learned how to, you know, spend in a little bit more of a, of a reasonable way and, and learn kind of the value of money and like, well, do I just want to blindly work 80 hours a week or 70 hours a week or whatever it is so that I don't have to worry about money? Or, or do I actually want to get my costs reined in a little bit? So I can actually not really like for the last year plus, I haven't made any income from working. And uh, I've been able to live off the appreciation of 
by investing the money that I, I was able to save from banking it. And that's something I never could have imagined. I figured that I would be eating some slow burn of, of some sort when I quit. But uh, I, I obviously didn't foresee COVID, you know, moved home, so saved on, on rent. And, uh, you know, I've done some Airbnbs and things like that. And, you know, eventually I'll need income, of course. But there's a lot of different ways to go about uh, living. And uh, people tend to obviously gravitate towards some norms. But the internet, for one, is, has made some things interesting. And doing things like, like we're doing right now is something that people just weren't doing 10, certainly not 20 years ago. Yeah. And so for that, for that period where... I imagine you're talking to the people you're close with and also some of your friends that are in investment banking maybe working with you. I'm sure you're hearing all sorts of different opinions and you mentioned conviction before. Is there anything you did or, or told yourself or something that helped you have more conviction to make that decision that you thought you would ultimately regret less? And... What were you kind of thinking at that time where it sounds like you could have gone one way or the other, something that allowed you to have that conviction, something you were thinking about or something you were reminding yourself about, especially for you know people listening to this that may be in a similar situation where other people think they're acting in a weird way or something that you're not supposed to be doing when their gut is telling them something else? Yeah, so... Um... A few things. One is like I, I had a little bit of like a norm or like a default and like an expectation in that when I joined banking, I figured that I was signing up for two years. I thought that I went in with an open mind. Some people go in and they start recruiting day one and I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to you know give it my all for a bit, give it a chance. Maybe this is actually something that I want to do for a long time. Maybe I like thoroughly enjoy it and then the work feels you know less like work and, and you know you're off to the races. I gave it an open time and that didn't really turn out to be the case. It, it, it was just, you know, not something that I foresaw myself wanting to do for 40 years or whatever it is. And uh, so made that decision and then came back to like, all right, well, I, I think I've committed for two years. And if I can find a, an attractive job after one or one and a half, then, then I can go do that. But I kind of had this expectation going in. And so as it approached, and I was recruiting like, you know, after the first year or maybe even before I don't remember exactly like when I did what processes, but I certainly interviewed for some jobs and, and private equity, venture capital, things like that. Didn't get it. I think I try to think of things as like everything happens for a reason. And if it's true, then great. And if it's not true, then you at least try to make everything make it happen for a reason and find a way where it's like, oh, you know, you can make it so that you're glad that happened because then you went and did this. And that's kind of where I'm at now. It's like I'm actually genuinely glad that I didn't get any single job that I went for. I don't know what would have happened if I did, but on like the one hand, I uh, when I was recruiting in San Francisco, I, I did the first half of banking in San Francisco and the second half in New York. And if I got one of the jobs I was looking at in San Francisco, I would have never got to move back to New York. I would have never been closer to my family. I would have never been closer to my friends because I grew up around here. And then uh, I never would have met my girlfriend. And it's like, you know, these things are are meaningful and. Uh, you just never, again, you never know how things are going to play out, but I'm glad I didn't get those jobs. And so two-year mark kind of came up and I didn't have the exit plan that I sort of expected I would get before or at two years. But I remembered that this was the point at which I, I wanted to, you know, I thought two years was, it showed that like, I could definitely do the job. I had good reviews and everything like that. And had, you know, had some 
some small, like, uh, you know, investment banking analyst type accomplishments there and had a good run. And the consideration in the first place, I guess, came from that, like a, an expectation that that consideration would be had at that point. And then once I got to considering it, like, I don't know, I think less than the average person, I probably go to people in my life for decision advice. I like to hear people's perspectives, but I really like to think about things for myself. And, uh, and also, I think so it was more of an internal conviction. Yeah. And, and than, I think then relying on other people's opinions. Yes. But I, I like to hear people's perspectives to for the sake of considering whether I may want to change certain kind of uh, ways that I, I'm thinking about things and, and frameworks for thinking about things. And actually, you can get that from, for example, Bezos with the re- regret minimization like that. That might have been the single most valuable framework that, that helped me make the decision. And that's not from anyone I can talk to in my day-to-day life. That's from you know watching a YouTube video about Bezos talk about why he started Amazon. So it's, it's very interesting today that we have access to all of these people's perspectives and especially things like decision-making, which are just very generally applicable. And the people around you, like if I go to... It's one thing if I go to like my parents or my friends, but if I go to my, my friends in banking who I'm spending you know almost all day every day with, we all are kind of within this group think of, you know, the group that we're within, within banking, where there's very much of like a track mindset of, you know, optimizing your kind of career path and accelerating your career path and like, what's the best move. And I was in the same mode. And it's very hard to, um, to see outside of that when you're all together, especially if you're kind of asking each other for advice. So I definitely ask people like within my life, certain, certain kind of for certain considerations. But another one, you know, I mentioned Bezos, obviously. Another critical realization that I had was, um, which, which gave me a lot of added conviction as well, was uh, Tim Ferriss has a book, uh, Four Hour Workweek. And um, he talks about how decisions are, are often a lot more reversible than we might think. And I realized that What's my worst? And he also talks about fear setting. It's actually two, two things that that he uh, contributed to my thinking in in this decision. So fear setting is like you imagine, you know, what's something that could happen? What's or what? What are you? You just write down like what are you scared of? And uh, then you think, okay, well, then you write down what could I do to prevent this this situation from unfolding? And then lastly, you say, even if what I try to do to prevent it doesn't work. How can I like repair this? Like, what's the absolute worst case scenario? And then how could I kind of deal with that? As it related to this, it's like, you know, I, I don't remember what they were at the time, but it's like, oh, I quit and I can't find a new job. And like, I need to take a job that I, I don't really even like because like I need money. And like, okay, so that's like the worst case scenario, not the end of the world. But what I realized also was with this reversibility thing was like, if I quit, like, my two years in banking on my resume doesn't go away. My, my degree doesn't go away. Who I am and what I've learned doesn't go away. So I'm not really, you know, some people might have a stigma for someone who quit without a job and spent their time doing this, that, and the next thing. But my qualifications are basically the same and, uh, and probably better. And I can, and, and as, as it turns out, I think they're, they're much better given some of the stuff that I've been doing over the last year. It's, it's more diverse and maybe not for for private equity, but for a startup or, or venture capital or something like that. And more, more than that, I'm not even interested in a lot of opportunities that I definitely would have been back then because I'm on a path that I'm really interested in right now. But even with all that, just the reversibility piece, I thought that like, 
you know, worst comes to worst, I could probably get a, a well-paying finance job. And if that's my worst case scenario, and that's why I'm scared of jumping off the cliff, because the worst case I, I land on that, that's something I can get pretty comfortable with versus the upside of, of following my gut or following my heart or whatever it is and doing whatever I want and figuring out what I want to do. Then, you know, that's a risk I want to take. What are your favorite moments to talk about from traveling Italy and Japan? Is there a specific moment or something that you view as meaningful above the greater trip that you enjoy talking about from those weeks in the aftermath of quitting investment banking? It's going to be fun to, to think about it. I haven't, uh, yeah. I haven't talked about it very much. So I, don't, I wouldn't say I have like favorite things to talk about, but uh, I could talk about a few. I, uh, yeah, like anything I said, I got, that feels more meaningful or, or something specific that stands out when you think about the trip. I'll pick a few. Uh, like I said, I, and I don't know how interesting this will be for people, but it's, it's fun for me to, to reflect on. So I'll, I'll go for yeah. it. Um, go for it. Like I said, I bought a one-way ticket to, to Italy. My girlfriend's ticket, unfortunately, was a round trip. She had a week she could take off work. So we went to, uh, we stayed in an Airbnb in the Amalfi Coast. And there was a, a bar that was, uh, we were basically like staying on a cliff in this town called Priano, which is in between Positano and Amalfi, which are much better known. Mm -hmm. But this town was amazing. And we were basically like in this Airbnb on the cliff that cost as much as like a closet would cost for an Airbnb in San Francisco or New York. Yeah. <laughs> and it was amazing. And we had this, uh, there was a bar owned by like a, a 45 year old guy and like his mother or something. They made the best cocktails in the world. And, uh, you know, you go and you sit there and it's outside and you look at Positano and everything like that. So the whole trip was amazing and it came to an awesome, uh, climax the last night. We, there was this one restaurant in the town that, uh, there's a bunch of good restaurants, but there was this one that was part of this, uh, you know, highbrow hotel. I don't know who stays there, but. There's a few hotels on, on that uh, Amalfi Coast that are just pretty absurd. But we could afford at least a dinner there and a special dinner. It was one of those, you know, preset, price fix, whatever type meals. So there's like seven courses or whatever it was and some wine and chocolate and things like that. And it was, and the, there was a guy on the piano and we were like one of two people sitting there on the roof. And we actually saw the moon over by like over the ocean by Positano, the moon set over the ocean. I'd never seen that in my entire life before. Wow. The, the I didn't even thing, know that was a thing. <laughs> I, I don't know if that is a thing. We might've been tripping, but, uh, but it was, we, we both agreed. <laughs> it that, was uh, uh, some special, some, some special substances in the dinner can uh, have that effect. Yeah. I don't know what they put in the risotto, but something was, uh, <laughs> yeah. was a little fishy. We both agreed after we felt, first of all, we felt sick after cause we ate so much, but, uh, we agreed that was like li literally the best meal we, we'd ever had. And that's a pretty cool, you know, I've had a lot of good meals and great meals. So that was, that was awesome. The next morning we're, um, we're driving to the airport uh, or getting driven to the airport. I, I never drive the Amalfi Coast. I, I go off the cliff or crash into a bus. It's like the scariest. There's motorcycles everywhere. It's crazy. But uh, we get to the airport or on the way to the airport. I decide I hadn't, you know, bought my ticket for where I'm going next yet. And I decided, I, you know, I... And your girlfriend's going back home. Yeah, she's... So you're staying there. Yeah, she's going back home. I might have decided the night before talking with her, but I, I bought the ticket, I remember, on the way to the airport. Uh, and, and I was going to Paris. Uh, probably, you know, not the best place to go, like, by yourself in terms of, like, being the most romantic city in the world. But 
it was a great experience still for me. And I had missed it. I had studied abroad, which was awesome. And, uh, and I was supposed to visit Paris with some buddies and we had to cancel it. There was like some terrorist thing at Brussels. So I never got to go. And, and oh, I've seen a lot of Europe. So I wanted to go to Paris. And, and it seemed like, you know, if you're going to go somewhere by yourself, why not just like go big? Went to Paris, spent like, and I, and I didn't have a place to stay. So when I got to, the, got to the airport and was waiting for my flight, I booked a hostel for, for like seven days. I had never stayed in a hostel. I think I stayed in a hostel one night before when I was studying abroad. My buddies and I went to Barcelona, but um, never really stayed in a hostel. And was like, you know, again, let's just rip the bandaid and, and see what living in a hostel is like. <laughs> and it's funny, I was like nervous. And, uh, and I got there and like, I realized like I'm like six foot three like American, like I have nothing to worry about. The, the people in my room, like there's like this Asian girl who's, you know, in the, in the bunk next to me who doesn't speak. She's from China. She, she like literally, you know, Asian from China, doesn't speak English, trying to find her way around Paris. She's like five foot two. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, I'm gonna be fine. And uh, had an awesome time in Paris and then went to Copenhagen for a couple of days and, and, and I guess in Paris, you know, uh, decided that I was going to meet my buddy who was traveling the world. He had spent a month in uh, Mongolia and uh, well, mostly Russia and then Mongolia and then China. And I was half expecting him to be like, you know, ha- have been uh, conformed to some degree by the time I met him in Japan, but he, he had a, uh, a good time in those places. I met him in Japan for a few weeks and we had a lot of fun there as well. Interesting story with just like the way that I was kind of living at the time was that the reason I decided to go to Copenhagen in between was I picked up a book in Paris that was about from this uh, famous, it was about this famous chef who ran the number one restaurant in the world for a few years. It was ranked and it was in Copenhagen. And I needed a place to burn a few days after my hostel in Paris was up before I went to, uh, to meet my buddy in Tokyo. And flights were, you know, they worked out from Copenhagen. So I was like, let's go see what this guy's country is all about. And had like some of the best few days. Copenhagen's an awesome place. Had, had an awesome few days of, of eating there. Recommended to me by the author of the book who I reached out to and, and asked for some restaurants while I was there. So um, was really just kind of going with the flow and living like the Parisians do in Paris a little bit. And spent a lot of time just kind of, you know, didn't know anyone. So... And wasn't really going out to like meet people or anything like that, but just kind of exploring and uh, seeing where things took me. That's something that I definitely plan on adding into my arsenal is learning how to travel long term on a budget, staying in hostels, booking one way tickets, because I haven't done too much of that yet. And yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to talk about traveling like that because there I'm sure you came across a lot of things that are unexpected and and things different experiences that you learn how to handle and there is a a romantic aspect to it of not knowing exactly where you're going to go with the one way ticket and and having this time and having just quit your job and I imagine you felt like the world was at your fingertips at that point it was a very unique time. And I actually, I, I had taken a two-week road trip after I graduated before banking. And I got back and it was with, uh, I started, I drove to Chicago from the East Coast by myself and then met a bunch, uh, several friends there and had a fun time for a couple nights. And then 
took off with just two of them for the, for the most of the remainder of the road trip for two weeks. And when I got back, I sat down for like a week or so. And I'd been, I'd just taken a few notes on my phone pretty much every day, like maybe one screen, one phone screen's worth of, of like a few notes of just like things to remember. Cause I don't have like the best memory in the world. And, uh, when I got back, but, but, you know, with the, with the spark to like recall some of these things, it was enough. So when I got back, I, I wrote a book, um, you know, not published or anything, but for myself, it's like hundred pages on word or something like that oh, of wow. the experience. And so when I went and, um, and did this trip, I, I wanted to do the same. And I didn't start writing until, until Paris when I was, when I was on my own. But I was actually, I, I basically like, that's how I was spending a lot of my time. I, I read that book that I mentioned that I had picked up. It's called, uh, Hunger or Hungry, I think. It's about uh, Red Zeppi mm-hmm. is, is the name of the chef. But besides reading and, and going and like seeing the sights and eating, definitely eating in Paris. Besides that, I was, I'd find like a cafe and like my main thing to do for the day was like find a cafe, get a cappuccino, get a, a Paris style breakfast, which is amazing. And, uh, you know, wherever you get it pretty much. And I'd sit on my, on my iPad with the keyboard and, and basically write about the previous day or, or whatever it was, or, or, you know, about nothing, like not about what I was doing, but just whatever. So I, I probably had like 75 pages from those travels as well of writing. And I, I actually haven't even read them once yet. So I'm looking forward to one day being able to read them and uh, reflect on kind of what that time in my life was like, because to your point, I'm less than a year out right now, but, or, you know, a little more than a year out, actually about a year out. It was a very very unique time and to go from working so much to not having anything to do or the pressure to even find what's next was pretty uh like you use the word romantic i think that's probably a good good way to go about it and then at a certain point like i'm you know i mentioned my buddy was he had set off for like a a year of traveling much better planned than than i'd come up with i was just kind of going a little bit spontaneously but i knew that i didn't want to just travel indefinitely the thrill wears off at a certain point and the value of this time, this time was just so valuable to me where I could not be pressured to need to make money right away and have this freedom of where I could be and what I could do. So first I doubled down on the where I could be bit and I traveled the world a little bit. And then I wanted to, you know, go back to, to the U S and, and sit down and think more about like, you know, okay, what do I want to do? And that's when I started writing. And then that ultimately led to the podcast and, and some of the things I'm doing today. What are the, the biggest things you've learned from writing consistently? Because even though a lot of what I do is podcasting, writing is a huge part of it. And I feel like I've figured out a lot of things when I'm either writing things down or saying them out loud for you during that period of, of traveling and then all the way up through creating the blog and, and writing on it seems like almost a, a daily basis. What are the biggest things you've learned about yourself through the act of writing? I'm curious, just uh, I'll answer, but um, when you talk about how like writing's been a big part of things for you, is that related to the podcast that you end up doing a lot of writing or, or separately you like to write? Yes. So a lot of times I will, I actually have a daily podcast where I'll riff on something, a, a topic, that I'm learning about or maybe a quote or, or something I've been thinking about. And I make a list of things that stand out to me content, content wise or thoughts that I have. And 
in the morning, I'll write for about 25, 30 minutes, trying to parse out my thoughts on that subject before I record. And while I'm doing that, I definitely feel things moving around in my brain in a way that I don't think they would if I had just consumed the content by reading it or listening to it on a podcast and then immediately recorded my thoughts on it. I definitely feel when I set the timer for for 25 minutes, I use tomatotimer.com. It's this Pomodoro clock, which if anyone uses the Pomodoro technique, it's 25 minutes on, 5 minutes off. I... I use that to help me focus. And when I let my mind and fingers run on the keyboard for 25 minutes, I find myself in much different places than I expected and much more interesting places than I would have expected to go to. And that is the writing related to the podcasting. And then also writing for myself. There are things that I don't periodically... The podcast is much more structured writing where I'll, I know every morning I'm going to wake up and I'm going to write out something that's going to be public content. And then I also write when I feel inspired for things that I'm not going to release. Like I, I went to Vermont and I was snowboarding for a weekend and I kind of had this idea of writing a short story about a, a vampire in Brooklyn and I started writing it when I was sitting around in Vermont, drinking some whiskey after a, a long day of snowboarding. And I'm still working on it. And I'm probably not going to release it. But it, that was something that I felt called to write about. And it was, it was really fun. And so I, I like the, the dynamic of having the structured writing content that I'm going to put out. And then also kind of going off on a whim whether it's writing a short story or recording music with my friends for fun, kind of like to have this untamed creative energy that a lot of times feeds back into the, the creative routine I've set for myself with the more structured things where I know I'm going to sit down at this time every day. So it's kind of like I'm, I'm dipping back and forth between this inspirational unstructured thing over here. And then I, try to take that back with me to the things that I'm, I know I'm going to release on more of a schedule. Yeah. That's a, uh, an interesting dynamic for sure is like the going on inspiration versus on a schedule. And both I think have, have their merits. You talked about like, you know, you felt called to write this short story. I think that's something that a lot of people wait a long time or, or search a long time to try to find a calling of some sort. And even if it's just for a particular thing that, you know, it's not a life mission, maybe, but something, to, one thing to do, I think it's probably best to your point to, to answer the call. For me, I started writing um, December 2019, soon after I got back, the Jets were actually, uh, I'm a Jets fan, unfortunately, and, and they were losing. To I grew up as a Jets fan too. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but uh, but they were <laughs> Thank losing... Thank you for your condolences. Yeah, they, they were losing to the Bills. I, I'm still in it, unfortunately. They're losing to the Bills who who hadn't won a game all year at that point. They are like 0-11 or 0-8 or something. And, uh, and that was just like, you know, bottom of Jets fanhood is always when they lose to the team that hasn't won a game all year. This year, that would have been possible because they were the team that, that hadn't won the game all year. But... I was like, all right, like, you know, I don't really need to watch this 
fourth quarter and I'd been thinking about starting this blog and figured that, uh, you know, uh, you know, if, if I can make, again, like almost like the, everything happens for a reason. And, and, you know, this sounds like deeper than it is. I just, this is just how I'm wired now. I, I look for bad things happen. I look for what the good is. And I think that's a really useful way to see the world. And, and you have to kind of program your, like you have to train yourself to be that way. It's not something you can like decide and like start tomorrow necessarily. But I realized like, wouldn't that be cool if I, I started this blog, you know, wrote my first blog now and had the, you know, the, the shitty jets to thank for it because uh, I wouldn't have never, yeah. you know, take, I, I might have taken another month to start or I might have never started. Uh, I, I personally think like if you don't start now, if you start now, there's a 100% chance that you'll, you start. If you don't start now, the chances that you start at the very least go down and, you know, you may never start. And so I used that and I, I wrote my first post about basically, you know, writing my first post because the Jets lost and I don't remember what it was about. It was very short. And then I basically started writing, um, you know, I, I wanted to release, I wanted to post a, a blog every day, uh, every weekday rather for, for the foreseeable future and see where that took me. I, I had a lot of things that I thought I wanted to write down and I was able to get a lot of those things down. And then after, uh, you know, like six, seven months of, of doing that, I realized like, this is actually uh, less and less. Is it feel like I, I just wanted more time. And, you know, I, I've, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to like even my daily activities. And I think writing is a, uh, for all the reasons you said, from, from learning to being like a thinking exercise to just being something that you commit to and, and engage with for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Or for me, it was usually closer to like somewhere between one and two and a half, three hours. Maybe three is a little high, but like usually somewhere between one and two, two and a half hours. And, uh, you know, committing to any activity for that long, that's not like video games or like goofing around on your phone is I think almost valuable in and of itself these days when everyone has shorter attention spans, myself included. So there's a ton of benefit to it, but I almost didn't have my didn't leave myself room to write for from inspiration. I would just have to be. Oftentimes, I would be inspired to write that day, but I also knew that it was something that I kind of had to do. So I wanted to kind of take it out of the the system a little bit, and you know, I didn't know how much time I would have not needing income, but I also knew that writing probably wasn't going to lead to anything significant in that capacity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that led me to maybe two months of having a little bit more free time and then deciding that it was probably less than that even. And then deciding that, uh, I wanted to go and, and do the podcast and the podcast is something that for me is, is also like really fun and really valuable. I'm, I'm learning so much by, I, I set these, uh, I put these guests on the calendar and, uh, I have, you know, I want to prepare well. And, and basically put myself in their mind and in their life and learn everything that they've kind of shared publicly. And mm -hmm. in doing that, it's just like the pace of learning is, is so much faster than I would otherwise be driven to do. So it's been amazing. I've met some amazing people. And I love having interesting conversations like the one that, that we're having now. And so, you know, who, who's to say that if, if I didn't kind of hit the brakes on that writing habit, uh, which I'm totally glad I did for for all the reasons mm -hmm. I said, and I probably undersold it a little bit. Like I'm, I'm very happy that I that I wrote so much as much as I did. Yeah. But 
giving myself the space to find something else to do in my time, such as the podcast. Uh, I don't know if I'd be doing it if had I not done that. So that was part of it. Speaking of diving into guests and kind of going into their experiences, one of the things that I I wanted to pick your brain about is Bitcoin. And I know you've written a lot about Bitcoin. One of the things that you wrote in your blog is that Bitcoin is the best opportunity I've come across in my short time as an investor. So I wanted to hear from you, what makes Bitcoin the best opportunity for you as opposed to something more conventional like stocks or real estate? Yeah. Um, so Bitcoin, I, I, I go on, am I going on a bit of a rant with Bitcoin? I, I tend yeah, to, go, uh, go ahead. It's the I talk perfect my, format for it. Yeah. I, I talk with my buddies and, and family and friends and, and everyone and people about it because in the digital world on my Twitter, I've got a lot of Bitcoin people who kind of follow. And, and I don't want that to be... There's certain people who are like pure crypto accounts and everyone's just like rooting for Bitcoin and everything like that. Like that, That's not what I want to be at all. But it just so happens that a lot of people who are interested in Bitcoin and interested in crypto have other interests in my view that are kind of oriented around helping build a better future, uh, living healthier, healthier and, and longer lives and making, you know, that the exchange of value like fundamentally a little bit more fair where you know Facebook has accumulated all the value of everyone who's ever contributed with, with a, a post or a like or whatever it is but without those people who contributed all of that over the years Facebook wouldn't be anything what it is so there's something to be said I think for network effects businesses like Facebook or Uber which you know grows as a result of you know more people drive then more people ride then more people drive and more people ride etc it's like a flywheel uh, Airbnb, the same thing with hosting and guests. The people who early on take a risk, uh, not maybe not a risk, but they just like spend time, energy, and money on contributing to the what what eventually develops to the such a powerful network. I think deserve some some value for their contributions, and I think crypto may enable that over time. And it's very early, but crypto as as a whole is is a a bit of a beast and hard to talk about I, I talk about like how you know the the closest comparison may be to uh the internet in in the 90s at some point and it's very hard to uh foresee like i said earlier that a bookstore and a search engine like google and uh some of these companies or or like a ride sharing business like who you know you couldn't have even like thought of that really like uber and it's hard to to see what how these things are going to unfold over uh, a decade plus, or even a century or whatever. So I, I won't really speculate on crypto too much. But Bitcoin, the reason I say it's it's the best investment I've come across, it also happens to be probably the most interesting investment that, that I've come across. But the reason I say it's the best is fairly straightforward. So the way I'll say I'll present it, and then if, if you want to go deeper, we can. But yeah, yeah, I, I compare it to a coin flip where if you could if you could flip and and by the way saying it's the best investment does not mean that it's guaranteed to work out it just means that from my perspective with all the available information that there is today it's the best investment i've seen of anything that i could say at any given moment was like you know the the best investment that i could see, say so like i'm not saying it's going to outperform what amazon's done over the past 20 years but 20 years ago with amazon well, I don't know. I wasn't alive then. It was pro- probably looked like a good investment maybe to some people too. But 
the reason I say it about Bitcoin is because I think it's a it's a bet that is worth taking. And the amount that people should bet is really a personal choice. And the reason I say that is because I view it as like a coin flip where, you know, a coin flip is obviously like 50-50 odds. And it's a coin flip where, in my opinion, if it lands heads, you're going to get at least 10 times your wager. Uh, and if it lands tails, you just lose your wager. So that's a, that's a bet that uh, unless you're like totally averse to gambling, in which case you're probably, you have all your money in a mutual fund, if, if anything, maybe just a savings account or whatever, which I think is probably not the move. But unless you're totally averse to gambling, you're going to flip that coin. It's just a matter of like how much you want to bet. Like you probably don't want to bet all your money on a coin flip, but you might want to bet, you know, 10% of your money on a coin flip mm-hmm. if, if, you, if you're only liable to lose 10% of your money, which is what you bet. But 10 times 10% of your money is 100 times, is 100% of your money. And so if you get heads, you double your overall money while only having to put at liberty 10% of it. So I'm talking in like these percentage terms and probabilities. Let me support it a little bit. The downside is easy. Bitcoin is a, uh, an unprecedented thing. It's been called digital gold. Uh, they've found a way to create scarcity online where traditionally this podcast, you'll produce it and you'll put it online. And there's essentially like a million copies. Everyone can, anyone and everyone who wants to listen can listen. But they found a way with Bitcoin through math basically to create like true scarcity. So anyway, if, if the whole system somehow becomes compromised, then and, and all of a sudden, you know, you can have infinite Bitcoins, then the value of Bitcoin isn't, you know, it's not valuable anymore. And it probably crashes to zero. Or if like Russia somehow gains control over the whole Bitcoin system, or, you know, maybe a little bit more probably like China or something like that then that's probably a fail case. And I don't know what the fail cases even are necessarily. Like, Not that I haven't thought about them, but with something that's unprecedented, you would figure that the fail case would also be something that's unprecedented and therefore mm-hmm. somewhat hard to foresee. So my biggest concern is kind of what I said, is like, what happens if a government says... Because ultimately, I think Bitcoin poses a... And a lot of people who are bullish on Bitcoin think that it poses a threat to you know, fiat currencies, including the dollar which is like the global reserve currency. They think that the dollar should be, you know, that, that Bitcoin should be the global reserve currency. So anyway, I think that one fail case is like, what if a government goes to a group of experts and says, uh, here's a trillion dollars, go get us control of Bitcoin or kill it or, you know, whatever you have to do. That seems feasible to me that they would be able to do that. Like, there's almost no doubt. The bigger question mark is, would they be incentivized to do that versus saying, just go get us you know, go own all of the Bitcoins and then you benefit from the upside, that would be what they would be more so incentivized to do to, to you know, spend that money on owning Bitcoins and then benefiting from its future. So people say like, well, a government would have to be idiotic to do that. But, you know, we, we see governments doing some pretty idiotic things. So I, I don't know, I don't, I don't totally discount that. And I just, I write off 50% of Bitcoin's future as a potential total failure. That's the downside of the, the coin flip, the tails. The heads is, if this is digital gold, well, the market cap of gold is about $10 trillion. And the market cap of Bitcoin is like $700 billion. And so it has 14 times upside to achieve the market cap of gold, if in fact it is sort of the same thing in a digital form. 
And I personally think that it could be, you know, even greater than that because, you know, I have a dozen friends and family at least who, who own Bitcoin and maybe one who owns gold. And certainly like with millennials and Gen Z, like, I bet there's a ton of people. I, I want to see the split actually of like how many people, what, what's the value of all Bitcoin owned by millennials and younger? versus the, the amount of all gold owned by, by millennials and younger. And theoretically, as the population ages, so long as Bitcoin survives, the overall split should only drive closer to that. And uh, yeah, I think that's that an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, I think that already may be that, that millennials, I mean, I'm speculating here, but it may already be that a, you, know, you get to a certain young enough age and there's already more Bitcoin owned in value than gold, even though the the value of gold is 14 times more overall. So yeah. I think it's a, a bet worth making and you know, we can dig into some other stuff, but that's kind of the general thought. Yeah. I, I want to say for people who are may not have a, a deep understanding of Bitcoin, which I'm certainly in that category, I read the, the paper you wrote on the fundamentals of Bitcoin to prepare for this podcast. And so I, I definitely recommend people going through the fundamentals of Bitcoin on blog of Jake and I'll link that in the podcast description as well. And you did a great job of discussing Bitcoin in a really understandable and also addressing the weaknesses of Bitcoin too, like you went into a little bit here. And it's funny because we spoke about accountability before on the podcast and this conversation brought that up for me a little bit with Bitcoin because one of the good things about podcasting is that when you talk about things enough, it kind of forces you to hold yourself accountable. If you, t- if you say you're going to do something and you say you're going to do something and you're constantly exposed to these ideas and you're not acting on it, it kind of makes you feel like kind of a fraud. And in my planner for about the past three or four months, I've had buy Bitcoin every single week. And then the week passes and then like the next week starts... And I'm like, all right, I didn't buy it last week. Like, I'll just write it down again. And I was doing this for three or four months, like going back in my planner. And I'm preparing for the podcast and I'm looking at my planner. I'm like, fuck, like Jake makes a really good argument for Bitcoin. I started to think about it in terms of everything that I own is backed by fiat currency. I'm invested in stocks, ETFs. I have some savings. I get paid in dollars. And so it makes sense to also hedge with currencies the same way that people hedge with different assets within the dollar. So one of the reasons I want to be invested in multiple stocks and ETFs is that I'm diversifying within assets within that currency. And so why not diversify currencies and put a percentage of my net worth in that I'm willing to lose should everything go bottom up. And the the spark for me to do that was preparing for this podcast and seeing it in my planner and being like, all right, I've, I've told myself I'm going to invest in Bitcoin for three months. I need to pull the trigger now or else I'm never going to pull the trigger. So it's kind of like a cool culmination of podcasting holding me accountable through something that I told myself I was going to do months ago and never really did. Yeah. So did you, uh, you did it now or, or you're going to like today? Yeah, I downloaded Coinbase, put about 1% of my net worth into Bitcoin and I'm a, a proud Bitcoin owner now. Perfect. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny. It's, uh, I'm glad that you, uh, 
you read the uh, the paper or the the longer form piece that I did. And thanks for for sending people that way. I I just try to take a uh, a reasonable perspective on it all. Like I want to be clear up front with anyone I talk to about it that it's not from my perspective a risk free investment by any means. It's riskier than probably most investments. Not because it's again easy to necessarily foresee why it would go down or why it could fail entirely, but because it is unprecedented and it's only 11 years old. But I think very quickly, just like, and this isn't my original idea, but someone, there's some phenomenon where like, you know, gold has been around for thousands of years and it's retained its function as a store of value since like, you know, the Egyptians thought that gold was extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's really has this established history, but established history is works a little bit differently these days. Things that, you know, what, what percentage of people 20 years ago or, or less 15, 10 years ago read books, you know, via physical books versus what percent of people today read physical books as opposed to on their Kindle or iPad or iPhone or tablet or whatever mm-hmm. versus what's that percentage going to look like in 10 or 20 or 100 years? Just because something has established history the internet, it could be argued, has taken mankind in a very different direction than we've been going along. Like we went from hunters and gatherers to agriculture to industrial. And many people view the internet as having introduced that next phase, whether you call it like the information age or whatever it might be. And a lot of things that uh, you know may still be carrying over from some of those older times, even if it survived, the industrial age doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to survive very much longer. And so that's a situation where like, I could see Bitcoin becoming more popular than gold for the use case that gold has traditionally held. I don't think that gold's history necessarily guarantees it from from having, uh, you know, from from not being as valuable necessarily in the future. And and frankly, I do think that it will retain its value because it should retain its scarcity unless we start mining asteroids and finding gold or I think deep sea mining is another thing that people are thinking. I I don't know too much about it, but there's like other ways that people or or synthetic gold potentially, which is totally unrecognizable as being different than than real gold. Like there's certain things that may be able to be done to take away the scarcity of gold. And ultimately scarcity is like one of, if not the most important properties of of something having value. You think about it the same way with like sports cards or sneakers or anything. Mm -hmm that you value, it's probably because it's scarce land in Manhattan, whatever it is. So if you take away the scarcity, then you take away the value. And it could be that, you know, gold may be worth less than Bitcoin in some number of years. And that could be three years or five years or 10 years or 20 years or never. But I think it's it's a possibility. And um, Bitcoin, 10 years, 11 years of established history, the other side of it is that not only does like a thousand years of established history no longer mean that it necessarily will continue going forward, but it seems that in this internet age, certain things don't need as long to establish a history which may kind of set them in stone for a longer period of time. So Mm -hmm. like the internet itself is only what, 25 years old or something like that. But like, it's unimaginable to think of a world without internet now. And it could very well be that and it's been unimaginable to think of a future without the internet for at least five or 10 years, I would say. And so, you know, probably more. And so like how long 
does Bitcoin take to get to that point where a future without it is no longer envisionable? And we may, you know, almost be there. A lot of institutions and hedge funds and big money, you know, pools of capital are getting into Bitcoin. And perhaps soon, a lot more companies will start holding some of their cash balance in Bitcoin. And then perhaps soon after that, if not around the same time, governments could seek to do the same. They already hold, you know, the, the, U, the US holds a certain amount of our money in like euros, I believe. Um, so, you know, gold would be another way to kind of hedge your, your currencies like, like you talked about. So Bitcoin, you know, sooner than, than later, perhaps may have kind of the, the required number of years in established history to have a lot more conviction that the fail case that I talk about being 50% may actually, you know, be a lot less than that. Yeah. And, and I think about, uh, like, look at podcasting. Podcasting has been a thing for a decade, somewhere, somewhere in that range. It's blown up within the past four or five years. And look how much people are investing in podcasting, despite the fact that it doesn't really have this long track record of people buying into it. And, and something else that I've thought about in terms of non-conventional things becoming mainstream, when I was reading about Bitcoin and also listening to the the conversation you had with Pomp, it made me think a lot about baseball, where back in the day, all the way up to when I was playing in high school, so 2011, 2012 in that area, there were a lot of people saying that weightlifting should not be in baseball. And more specifically, pitchers should not lift any weights. It was like something that would destroy your arm. And for whatever reason, the baseball community was super traditional about lifting weights and other weighted baseball exercises, overloading, underloading, things like that. And now you fast forward to 2020, 2021. And if you told someone, if you, if you told a professional baseball player or even a high school coach that you planned on becoming a major leaguer without ever touching a weight or a weighted baseball, if he was up to date on the current mainstream practices of professional players, he would laugh at you for thinking that you would ever get to that level without touching a weight or without having some sort of weighted implement as a part of your routine to build strength and build durability. And it seems like it's not a guarantee that Bitcoin will uh, be around 10, 20 years from now, 100 years from now. But it's it's certainly something to think about where there are a lot of other things that were very recently considered not in the mainstream or something that you shouldn't be doing and are now today. People are like, oh, you're you're not, uh, you don't lift weights and or you're not invested in Bitcoin or like they almost look at you like you're you're dumb or something if you if you had that approach in, in baseball. So I don't see a reason why that couldn't happen with Bitcoin. Yeah, I think things go from uh, being like viewed as somewhat of a joke or something that you definitely shouldn't do or don't want to touch to something that quickly, you know, flips over and becomes the norm. And why aren't you involved in it, whether it's weightlifting or Bitcoin, to your point? I could certainly see that. I, I think it's already starting to happen. If, if you believed that Bitcoin would achieve the destiny that a lot of people, you know, now you have hedge fund managers going on CNBC and talking about it, that Bitcoin could be like the digital gold, like I kind of talked about. People who talked about that when Bitcoin was worth less than a penny a coin or a penny a coin or a few bucks a coin or whatever it was in 2010, 2011, they were like factually delusional. Like you couldn't 
you could not justify that back then. You could say that it has all these properties and like, you know, you could justify the possibility of that happening. But to like hardcore believe that that was inevitable and destiny would have been like just factually delusional. But they're right. So I think sometimes it takes some early believers, some people willing to believe in something crazy for that crazy thing to then come to fruition. And I think that's like a broader lesson that I've, I've taken from looking at the history of Bitcoin a little bit and the history of some interesting companies like, like Amazon and Apple, Tesla, SpaceX. A lot of these amazing companies were the ambitions of their founders were crazy. Just factually, mm-hmm. that, you know, it was not probable that they would succeed in whatever that they were going for is very, it was, it was closer to impossible than probable, but it was possible. And the probability was just very small, but mm-hmm. by believing in it and getting a group of people working on it that also believed in it, you know, Elon Musk is sending rockets to space and Jeff Bezos is lending Amazon's hand to help the government because they're the best yeah. logistics and fulfillment company in the world. You mentioned scarcity before with with Bitcoin. And I actually had a conversation with my dad recently about Bitcoin. And he mentioned one of his concerns was, oh, like if if we run out of Bitcoin, how are we going to make more if there's no way to go beyond a certain level? And you spoke a little bit before about how scarcity is actually a strength in Bitcoin. Are there any other misconceptions that you come across normally or frequently that maybe you could clear up. And again, people that are super, that, that want to deep dive into it, definitely go to the fundamentals of, of Bitcoin for like a, a surface level understanding, maybe something you could clear up quickly on the podcast. Is there a certain, uh, certain area or something that people commonly misconstrue, such as scarcity that you could speak on? Yeah. And, uh, and hopefully correct. Yeah, there's... A couple, but I'll start with at least one. Um, I think the major concern that I hear is like, there's nothing to it. Like there's no physical, there's no physical thing. Like how could it be valuable? People think about investing. They think about stocks. You have a company that is spitting out cash flows and anticipates and projects to do so for years to come. So when you buy a share of their company, you're basically buying a share of the sum of their future cash flows. And that's like what it is. There's a real entity. And then, you know, you can also think about, you think about investing, you think about gold. It's like, well, gold, again, like we talked about, has had this value uh, that it's maintained and the value has grown over years and years and years because it's scarce. And so gold, again, it's like, well, people, you know, it's shiny and it looks good. And like, you can sell it as a necklace or like whatever. There's something physical there. Same thing with like real estate. Or again, you know, I, I mentioned like sports cards, I think is like kind of actually an underrated analogy almost, or sneakers or, or whatever, any art, any, anything that holds value, it's in some way linked to, to scarcity. So you talked about the scarcity piece, but I think what I'm actually getting at here is that the, uh, the misconception is that most people think that you need something physical in order to deserve a significant valuation of that thing. And my argument is that, no, that's, that's not true. You just need, you know, it doesn't need to be physical. But in the case of Bitcoin, it is, it's basically a database that can't be changed, which says that so-and-so owns this amount of Bitcoin. 
or you know this bitcoin belongs to so and so in a way that that can't be tampered with by by any government or any institution or individual and that's a part of the whole the reason why why some of the early adopters of bitcoin were so excited about it was is this ability to make money for the people where the government can't print a trillion dollars a year like you're seeing now and devalue the worth the the purchasing power of um everyone who holds dollars in in the economy right now it's uh, i don't want to get into it but the minimum wage thing is kind of interesting as well but the way to debunk that with bitcoin i think is to realize that money and value is ultimately a belief system bitcoin is ultimately a belief system and i, I wrote about this a little bit but if you think about bitcoin simply as a belief system and ignore a lot of the fluff, what you realize is we've got a small percentage of the world that owns and believes in Bitcoin. And the two are not necessarily the same, but you've got a a small percentage of the world that really has really high conviction in Bitcoin and its future. And they will not sell it until it's at least reached some semblance of that future. Because if they sell it anytime before then, they're selling, you know, unless they really need money in like a cash app situation, they're holding it because they believe in the future so strongly. Then you have a very large population that doesn't strongly believe in Bitcoin. And it's much more quickly happening from my perspective that people from that large population are becoming exposed by people from the small population and coming to believe in Bitcoin. It's a very it's almost like a religiously powerful thing to believe in because of it. It's not just like an investment, right? It's this concept that we can all hold this thing that, that retains value. We can put our money somewhere where the government can't control it. And it's hard to imagine in the US when we've been pretty stable, but in countries in like, and by pretty stable, I mean like very stable in that, you know, the value of dollars, there's been inflation, but we don't go through like overnight volatility like you see in, in Venezuela or Argentina where their life savings basically becomes worthless because something that the government has done. And certain countries, I think India also like overnight said like this certain type of bill was no longer valid. Like imagine if, if they just said like if you held your money and, and you know, rich people have the ability to invest with all these institutions and, you know, invest in all these different assets. But poorer people or, or middle class or whatever, you know, they hold a good amount of their money in like cash and like, especially in some of these poorer countries. And imagine if like all your $100 bills were no longer valid and you couldn't use them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it's, it's very suck. scary. And like it's, people have dealt with this firsthand. You can read, there's a piece by this guy. Uh, I'm going to mess up his name, but uh, Wences is his first name. I don't want to even say Cesares or something is his last name. He, uh, I think he's on the board of PayPal, but his family was from a background like this. And he wrote about how Bitcoin was personal for him. It's kind of interesting. But um, the thing is, uh, getting back to the belief system, the thing is, this large pop, it's such a larger population that doesn't yet believe in Bitcoin. And it's such a strong rationale for believing in it once you sort of get it. And so it Mm -hmm. becomes like very, almost like virally spreadable. And that's kind of why it's, Maybe it's so many more people have become to believe in it over the last decade already. Is because it's such a yeah. it's a story that's so uh, attractive to like get behind. Yeah. So you have all these people coming in, 
and starting to believe. And then on the other side, these believers, they're just seeing the price go up over time. And there's been tests all throughout Bitcoin's history of the value drops 80%. It's happened four separate times, at least, I think, that it's dropped at least 70 or 80% in value in like very short period of time. Something that would freak stock investors out. Like it's just not something that happens. But that's the way Bitcoin's worked, but the believers aren't phased. And the people who didn't have high conviction, they might panic and sell. But then Bitcoin slowly starts accumulating at this lower level and the believers start coming in with more and more conviction. And then it goes to the next level and it goes 20x. And that's kind of how the history has gone so far. And so I don't see any reason that that history is not going to continue. You know, there's a saying, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So I don't know if, uh, if the next, you know, peak for Bitcoin is going to be a 20x followed by a, uh, a 70 or 80% fall. I have a guess as to where it might go from here in the near term, but near term guesses are, are less valuable to me than long term conviction. And, and the long term conviction for me is that while there is certainly a fail case, well, not certainly, but while I certainly choose to believe that there is a fail case, whether I can know what it would be now or not, the success case is a lot bigger than, than what Bitcoin's valued at right now. And, and that's a part of why I value it. So ultimately, the reason, you know, it doesn't need a physical thing as long as it's something and it exists in some capacity, which in this case is kind of proof of ownership. As long as people believe it has value, it does. And that's the belief part is such a, an important aspect of it. Just like the dollar, if I give someone a $20 bill, the reason they're accepting it is, is not because it, what it's backed by, it's because they believe that it's also worth $20 that the next person will believe it's worth $20. And once Bitcoin starts to hit that chain reaction, I imagine it's going to start to become more prevalent to the average person that isn't really aware of its value and how good of an investment it could be. And part of that, I think, will will be people coming forward about Bitcoin. Like uh, I saw you recently tweeted a conversation with Russell Okung, an NFL player who asked to be paid in Bitcoin by the Chargers, I believe. And so... I think it was 50% of his, his salary is going to be converted from dollars to Bitcoin. And he set that up with his own wallet and it goes into details on the combo with Pete McCormick. And so I, I think a lot of what's going to change people's opinions is these forward-facing people, whether it's in the NFL or you had a conversation with Blau in the music industry who's, who's deep into Bitcoin and crypto and he's actually combining a lot of the things he does with music with Bitcoin. And, you know, if someone like Justin Bieber had a tour in 2021 and and said that you can only buy tickets in Bitcoin or something like that, then that's going to have a huge effect on the way that people view it as, as something legitimate. And I don't think it really takes... When you have someone who's so public and has so many followers, you don't need as many people believing in it on the a level where you don't have as many followers because those people who do invest and are public about it can convert thousands, maybe millions of people by posting about it or tweeting about it, whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, I should say, uh, or I want to say that, you know, as, as being a podcaster myself, uh, I appreciate and, and respect the preparation that you put in ahead of this. Like you named a few tweets and, uh, 
read the Bitcoin piece and listened to some podcasts. And uh, I know, I think people look at podcasting as, uh, you know, you just get on and you talk. But I know from my perspective, and it, it certainly sounds like from from your process, it's actually a lot of work that goes into it. And uh, so I, I appreciate you doing all that. I think to your point on on Bitcoin and how fast the belief can grow. Another angle, you know, you have the celebrities and the athletes, which is one thing. Right now, you also have uh, hedge funds and these institutional investors, which are very much normalizing it as like a. It goes from again something that you don't touch to something that's a part of best practices as a major institutional fund. And then the next two big catalysts from my perspective are you have a company called MicroStrategy. The, the CEO, Michael Saylor, has taken an incredibly aggressive approach from my perspective, but one which has paid off so far and may very well pay off in, in a huge way in the future, which is they've put 100% of their cash balances into Bitcoin, which is like, I don't know what the, it changes every day. I think he just bought more yesterday for, for the company, but they have an absurd amount of Bitcoin that they own now. And then another one on the opposite spectrum, opposite side of the spectrum is Jack Dorsey uh, with his company Square. I think they put 1% of their cash balances in, in Bitcoin. And that's certainly a much more reasonable and conservative approach, I think. And uh, I think a lot of companies will land somewhere in the middle of that, more likely towards towards Jack's end of the uh, the spectrum with Square, whether it's 1% or 0.1% or 10% or whatever it is. I think a lot of companies will start to hold some of their money in Bitcoin. And uh, you know, the one after that would be, like I kind of mentioned earlier, for, uh, for governments to start doing the same. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you mentioned the, the research for the, the podcast. I, I, I really enjoy the, the research aspect. And it's probably my second... Uh, besides having the actual conversation, that's what I enjoy the most behind the conversation is the research, which is why I recently started doing conversations every two weeks instead of every week. Because I, I do really like that first week digging into someone and then the second week kind of thinking about from a broader level what type of questions I want to ask and what I think will be the most interesting. So yeah, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad the research shows. And in the interest of time, because I want to respect your time, we're coming up on uh, two hours here, which is which has flown by. And, and this has been a blast. I wanted to go through one of your tweets recently, which is you tweeted out the, the old is betting on companies and the new is betting on people. So I wanted to hear from you what your elevator pitch is for why someone should bet on Jake, and maybe a different way to ask that would be, what is your special talent that you think will lead to your future success long term? Why should someone bet on blog of Jake and pot of Jake and the Jake Jake in general? Yeah, uh, interesting question. My uh, there was something that inspired me to tweet that I forget what exactly what it was. I was listening to a podcast, I think, of some sort, and and oftentimes I'll, I'll do that and a. Uh, Something will hit me, and and Twitter has become a little bit of an outlet for me. Just over the last few months, to I start rather than taking a note to myself, I just tweet it. So mm-hmm. that was part of what was behind that. Why should people invest in me? I think on the one hand, I hope to make it so that people can more formally invest in me, and I don't know exactly how I'm going to do that. There could be an element of social money or personal tokens 
Uh, I recently did a podcast with uh, Bradley Miles, tryroll.com, or, or maybe it's roll.com. I don't know, but tryroll is their Twitter. Interesting concept that they have going there. Another concept is like what you see with Lambda School with income share agreements, where you get a certain amount of investment up front as the student. You know, well, it's not investment, but you get your education paid for and then you pay it back over time. And as I need some, liquidity if I don't be get, if I don't get some income stream soon from the podcast or otherwise that could be something that's interesting to me so I'm thinking about ways fairly actively about how I could make myself more objectively like practically investable to people and another a third way would be to have a fund where I invest in startups or crypto projects or whatever it might be and I take a certain cut of the profits of the fund, but people can invest in the fund if they trust me. And that kind of brings me to, and it's not just trusting me, of course, it's, it's trusting my judgment. You can trust me, I can have terrible judgment and be a terrible investor. And then it doesn't matter if you trust me, it's, it's awful investment. But I think that that ties in nicely to why I think I would, I would suggest that people consider investing in me and, and, uh, and following and you know, there's other ways to invest other than your money. You invest your attention in listening to my podcasts and and reading me reading my blog. Or uh, these days, I'm I'm more active with with the short form with with the tweets. The reason I I would say you know I, I think people could benefit by doing so is because I, I personally think that I have uh, I you know this this might sound whatever, but I, I think I have really great judgment. And you know, decision making. I talked a little bit about like why I quit banking. I frequently find myself in positions helping people I know navigate decisions and bringing kind of frameworks to those decisions that simplify things quite a bit and take a very like philosophical wide lens of you know this is life and you can do whatever you want with it and not some of the the nitty gritty and and logistical stuff that tends to get in the way. And I think over time, that's a very important thing is decision-making and judgment. It kind of is the root of everything. You look at these people who've built these incredible companies. Uh, and I mentioned like I'm reading Bezos' share lo- shareholder letters. His decision-making is all along the way. It's just been fascinating. It's based, uh, I guess, another, you know, my judgment and then my, my principles. And I'm pretty public with, you know, you can kind of figure out what I'm about based on what I'm talking about and how I'm talking about it. And uh, having principles of some sort and being open to, to changing them and changing your mind on anything over time, but, but having a, a set of things that you sort of believe in and, and being a principled person and then uh, and having a, a bunch of frameworks or, or even just one framework, but uh, a good way of making decisions and, and making judgments over the course of your life, I think is a, uh, a good recipe for success. and. Uh, I have a lot of faith in myself, so I hope other people are able to uh, to have some faith in me as well. And ultimately, you know, the proof will be in the pudding, and, and we'll see what happens. But it's still very early for me. I, I don't think I've hardly gotten started on anything yet. Is kind of the way that I view things. Yeah, but I'm excited about some of the the aspects that I'm incorporating into what I'm doing, and I feel like you know I'm doing exactly what I want to do. And uh, that wasn't, tr- that, that's not true for a lot of people. And, you know, if it's not true for me, like one thing I, I think is important is like, 
we talked about with the different musicians and like if if you have someone who uh if you have like real fans like not like fickle fans then if you have like deep fans then then they'll follow you uh you know whatever whatever you decide to do so long as you don't kind of ruin that relationship and and those are the type of people that I hope to gain a following from because I you know I wrote every weekday for several months and then then I stopped and now I just write kind of whenever I want and I might go back to writing every weekday for for years or who knows what uh, and with the podcast right now I've been pretty consistently doing like a couple episodes a week but I don't know if I'll be doing that forever so I, I'm kind of I'm much more committed in who I am than than what I do and if you're kind of interested in in who that person is or, or who you know your impression of me then I encourage you to uh to follow along and maybe at some point have an opportunity to invest not just your attention but but your money yeah it's interesting because you, you spoke uh earlier on in the podcast about how investment banking is something that people desperately want to go into. And then once they're in it, they desperately want to find a way out of it. The the things that you are vocal about and willing to take a stand behind like Bitcoin and anti-aging and longevity, which could be an entire uh, separate podcast on its own. Those are two things where in terms of the global population, there's really not that many people paying attention to Bitcoin and longevity science. But the people that are involved in it are not trying to get out of it at all. They believe in it because it's the the future and they think that it's going to be around for a very long time and will benefit people for generations to come. And so there, was, there wasn't really a question there. It was, it was more just an interesting kind of dichotomy between what you're interested in now on, on Twitter and with the blog and, and podcast and what investment, what, what your analysis of investment banking was with that quote, with people wanting to get into it and, and then immediately wanting to get out of it. Yeah, I think um, another thing to your point, like the slowing and reversing aging, general you know, research on life extension and longevity is something that even less than Bitcoin is is gaining some attention. The longevity stuff is still very underappreciated and extremely underinvested. And from yeah, my perspective, it seems very fringe. Yeah, but there's very smart people who are paying attention as well. I think two of the smartest people that I've learned from in the last year have been uh, Vitalik, the creator of of Ethereum, and uh, mm-hmm. and Balaji, who sold uh, you know multi billion dollar company. Uh, another very successful company sold the Coinbase, all sorts of smart. And both of these guys, if you look at their Twitter bios, they're, it's actually, you know, Vitalik's is uh, a fable, which I'd actually recommend to you. I, I think you might like, uh, just based on getting to know you. It's, yeah. it's, a, uh, it's not directly about aging. It's about a dragon, but you'll get the, uh, the metaphor pretty quickly. And then Balaji's, you know, bio last time I checked was... Uh, it may be possible to reverse aging. And then there's an article about that. So I think it's something that I actually, and this, you know, again, if you really believe in this stuff, it changes your outlook on life. Like I don't discount the possibility that I could live to 130 years old. And that's not an extreme difference from what people expect today, but it's extreme enough that, you know, very few people on earth would expect that. No one has lived that long to our knowledge yet. Uh, not provably at least. And uh, if you start looking at your life as potentially being 130 years long, you might live it a little differently than if you expect it to be 85. 
and uh, or, or if you're lucky, 100 or 105 or whatever it is. So I do expect some of these areas. And again, that comes down to judgment. It's like, where am I choosing to invest my time and energy and attention and, and willingness to learn? Um, and I'm pointing it in these directions of crypto and life extension and city building, I think is another incredibly interesting area. I'm trying to figure out where I'm most interested within climate change. I think there's a lot of noise and a lot of wokeness and, and certain negative characteristics, but it's obviously, you know, the, the world is getting warmer and we don't know exactly what effects that's going to have, but it seems probable that they may be at least in large part undesirable for large populations around the world. And for me, nuclear energy is emerging as something that may be interesting. I don't know nearly enough about it yet, but um, I think that's going to be something. But, but again, there's, there's so many people talking about climate change and, and focused on that. I don't think incrementally I'm going to do very much there. But by getting some you know, mainstream people to, to learn a little bit more about crypto, more than just as an investment, and then pay attention to some of this aging stuff as well, not to reuse the word and kind of make a pun, but I think a lot of what I'm doing, the way that I see it, if my judgment does prove to be pretty good, it's going to age quite well itself. So we'll see where it all leads. But um, it's exciting for me now. To bring it back to you as we end off, this is something I've asked a, a few guests in the past. If, if someone read your entire blog, everything you've ever written, listened to every podcast you recorded read all the same books, consume the same content. If, if there was someone like that who existed, what is there in your life that that person wouldn't see? Or what, what's the hidden influence that drives you that people wouldn't pick up from reading your blog or, or listening to the podcast? Something that's deeper that drives you that may not, be, that may not come out through the, the content creation? Uh, yeah, it's a, an interesting question. I'll try my best to give a sincere answer and hopefully it's a little bit interesting. I think that uh, a lot of what drives me is, um, and, and some of this may be more apparent or, or not, but a lot of what drives me is that uh, I view myself as uh, incredibly fortunate, like beyond comprehension to be born where I was to the parents I had in the area I, I grew up in, with the education I grew up in, in this time, which I think is the greatest time in the history of the world to be alive and only getting better. It's an unimaginable fortune. And I think that I feel obligated to, uh, and not to mean I don't want to do it, but part of the reason I want to do it is I feel a duty and an obligation to give back to the world some of what I've been given. <laughs> and this might seem like cheesy or, or whatever, but I think a lot of what's what's true behind people's purpose and, and motivations and drive, if they're being sincere, can sound that way. So I think I think I wanna I wanna make a difference in the world. And I think there's there's total merit to the argument that you can do that in in your day-to-day -day life by being nice to people and and uh, you know, doing good things here and there, and that's that's great. But that's not for me. I want to, I want to do something big. And it sounds a little vague, but I'm finding ways already. I think where where I can do that, even if it's just allocating 
you know, gaining certain amounts of attention that are paid to me and allocating that to areas that I think deserve attention, doing the same thing with money, getting attracting money that people will give to me and allocating it in ways that I think deserve funding, reallocating the the money and attention in the world to things that I believe in. I think that's a way to make that change that I talk about strictly through decision making. I think that over the course of my life, I wouldn't be surprised if I started a company or an organization of some sort to more directly lead something to make that kind of change for the better that, that I foresee. But I think a lot of people grow up with that. They understand what I'm talking about. It sounds familiar. But over time, you know, you have to get a job and, and you want to start a family and, and I want to do the same. But these things kind of come up and, and you forget that and you, uh, you don't think about that anymore. You, you have certain things that bring you joy in life and a family and you have a great life. Uh, you know, nothing against that by any means, but I haven't, uh, I'm only 26. So there's, there's some ways to go, but I haven't given up on that. And I've only doubled down. And uh, I think, you know, it's, again, I said, it's, it's very early, but I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully you could have all the information that I've consumed and read all the books, but that's a part of what drives me from the inside. And I think that probably resonates with a lot of people. And uh, if I can, can leave your listeners with anything, it's like, you know, it's not for everyone. But uh, if you think it's for you, I think you probably know it's for you and, and then go for it. Yeah, no, that, that, was a, that was a great and interesting answer to that question. And, you know, I, I want to, as we end up, I want to thank you again for hopping on the podcast and this has been a blast and I know a lot of people will gain a lot of insight and check out a lot of new material because of what you've said. And I want to express to listeners that what you've written has personally impacted me in the decisions that I've made with Bitcoin, with content ideas. I'm constantly writing down things that I want to talk about and express on the podcast. And so a lot of your ideas on the blog have made its way into my notes. And, and I highly encourage listeners to check out your podcast and your blog, which will be linked in the podcast description. And yeah, thanks again for for taking the time to to speak with me. And this was a blast. Yeah, thank you, Zach. It was uh, a lot of fun and appreciate the uh, the interesting line of questioning. And it's been it's been great talking with you. And again, as a, uh, you know, someone doing a podcast myself, I I look at what you're doing here and uh, you're doing an awesome job and hope that people listen to me on, on the interviewer side and, and think something of the same because uh, I think you, you drove a, a really awesome conversation and it was awesome to come on and be a part of it. Appreciate that. Thanks, Jake. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Auxoro podcast. If this show has moved and inspired you in some small way, we would appreciate you taking the time to send this show to someone else you care about. The best way to spread love is to share what you love. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at at Auxoro and tune into our channel on YouTube by searching Auxoro for the video versions of these conversations. See you guys next time, motherfuckers.